Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Microscopic tissue slides often contain vibrant colors and intricate patterns, which to some resembles art. My guest today is forensic pathologist, Dr. Marion Hamill, and she is one of the creators of Death Under Glass, which is an art collection of microscopic images. Today, we're going to talk about how she uses this collection along with the associated social media accounts to educate people about pathology. And we'll talk about her cold case work and being part of the VDOC Society. Here's Dr. Marianne Hamill. You are a forensic pathologist. And uh, so I want to start there. How did you come to choose, well, I guess, pathology in the first place and then forensic pathology as a specialty? Well... I decided I wanted to be a forensic pathologist when I was about 14 for no reason that I can recall. Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And um, when I was 19, right after my freshman year of college, I did a summer internship with a local medical examiner in my community. Okay. And he let me go to autopsies and go to court and go to, you know, civil proceedings and Pretty much I followed him around all summer like some kind of morbid duckling, and (laughs) I really enjoyed it. And it turns out it's a good job for someone like me. I don't tolerate boredom very well. I could never be a physician who did the same procedure over and over. And the great thing about forensic pathology is that I get to do something different almost every day, and I never really know what's going to come out of the bag, so out of the body bag. So it's a, it's a good job if you have a short attention span. So then how did the, uh, how did the whole training process go for you? I mean, did you ever, you you never questioned this choice throughout medical school and residency and everything? No, I walked into medical school wanting to be a forensic pathologist and I walked out wanting to be a forensic pathologist. So I guess, you know, I, um, I stick to things when I, you know, when I make a choice, I stick to it. Okay. (laughs) You know, I've heard from other people, like, they say, oh, I'm going to go into pathology and they go, oh, no, you're, you know, you're so good with people and you'd be good with patients and things like, like they try to talk them out of it. Did you have that experience? Uh, Frequently. Um, And I found that very, very odd, especially from clinicians who rely so heavily on anatomic pathologists to get the answers that they need to treat patients correctly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was a regular occurrence. I didn't even tell people in medical school I wanted to be a forensic pathologist. I just said I wanted to be a pathologist because that that earned me an, enough uh, enough talkings too that I decided, you know what, I'll just keep the forensic part to myself till I get to residency. Right. Yeah, I've heard that that's another level of uh, people trying to talk you out of that. It certainly is. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk with you is you have a a website and an Instagram page and other things. It's called Death Under Glass. And you started this with a uh, forensic photographer, Nikki Johnson. Yes. So, okay. I, I kind of want to get into like, what was the origin of this? When did you, when did you come up with this idea and, and how did it sort of progress? When I was a trainee, uh, I spent a lot of time reading slides and I noticed that often even if the specimen was pretty grossly ugly or unattractive, the microscopic version of that was often beautiful, particularly with special stains. And Mm. I thought it was kind of odd that no one had ever um, presented histology as art before. 
So I said something to Nikki, who is not only a forensic photographer, but an accomplished New York City photographer. And um, I said, you know, it would be really awesome if, if you could turn this into actual art. And she said, well, you could. So we worked together. And um, what eventually happened is we ended up with a traveling exhibition of images taken through the microscope called Death Under Glass. Mm-hmm. And um, the accompanying social media got a lot bigger than I ever expected. It took about four years to get from the initial idea to an actual show on the wall. But after that, it snowballed pretty quickly. Okay. Okay. And how how did you meet Nikki? She was the first forensic photographer when I was a trainee at the office. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've been friends with her for a long time. So when you initially started this and you, you know, had the idea and you were pursuing it, I guess, well, like, what kind of feedback did you get from other people about that? Like, did they think that was a great idea or they think it was very, you know, like very odd and unusual? I think it was the latter, uh, odd and unusual, until I actually showed them the images. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then I got great feedback. And I got even better feedback when we printed the images on uh, aluminum panels that were easy to hang and easy to ship. And the images printed beautifully. Right. And looking back on it, I think one of the reasons that this hadn't been done before is that um, high-definition color microscopy, the the quality of the camera was not up to what you would need so that you could blow up a photo until recently. Oh, sure. Okay. So so you're taking the pictures like – do you have like one of those cameras attached to the microscope? Yeah, I I have a trinocular head scope and so I have – uh, two eyepieces for my eyes and then one on top for the camera. Okay. Okay. And then, so like right from the beginning, this was intended to be sort of a printed art exhibit rather than kind of an online thing. The online part came later. Is that what I'm understanding? The online part came later. I was really interested in sort of showing people what, you know, we call, I always think of it as the pathologist view of the world. Right. You know, how, how pathologists see the world through the microscope, because I think that's, Histology is kind of interesting in that the pathologist is the interlocutor, if you want to use that word, the person who translates what the tissue is telling telling you and tells the clinician what that means. So it's almost like learning another language. Um, hmm. you know, learning to read histology takes thousands of hours and tens of thousands of slides, but eventually it, it is kind of translational in other words you're trying to get across to the clinician what the what the tissue means right you know and just reading through the, the website it, you mentioned on there that kind of a part of the reason for like like you're talking about part of the reason for starting death under glass was to bring attention to the histology part i mean everybody talks about the gross uh findings and even on you know tv shows and things like that it's always about the you know, the gross findings and no one ever talks about the microscopy that the actual histology is that it, it, why was that important to you then to focus on that area it was important to me because i felt like i have felt like for a long time that forensic pathology hasn't been represented very accurately um on television even though i think there are more forensic pathologists on television than there are in actual practice that is another issue mm, yes <laughs> but um you know, you sort of got this vague, uh, vague illusion. Like there's a microscope in the background. Nobody ever looks through it. And they certainly don't ever tell you what they see. But 
forensic histology is, can be a huge part of cracking a case. Do you use it in every case? No, but when you need it, it's critical. No one ever talks about that, though. Right. That's true. That's true. Just from watching these the TV shows, I, I can't remember ever seeing a microscopic image, to be honest. Or even an allusion to a microscopic image. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then you, when you're starting the, the, the exhibit, the Death Under Glass exhibit, and you've got the, you mentioned the photos are printed and how you did that. How did you sort of spread the word about that you had this thing and you wanted to show it? Well, we got kind of lucky. I had um, a close friend of mine is Anna Doty, curator of the Mütter Museum. And okay. it just so happened that at the time we were working on the Death Under Glass exhibition, the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, which is one of the only uh, medical museums in the United States that has wet specimens, had recently renovated their building to have a gallery. So Death Under Glass was the second show to show in the Thompson Gallery at the Mütter Museum in 2014. So we had not only had a good idea, but we also had really good timing, <laughs> which is just luck on our part. Right. Yeah, that, I can understand that. Okay, you mentioned the Motor Museum. Uh, can you tell me about that a, a little bit more? Like, what what is it? And I mean, I, I read a book on this place, so I kind of know where the collection sure. came from. But can we talk about that a little bit? So the Mütter Museum is named after Dr. Mütter, who was um, a physician in Philadelphia many years ago. And he had a collection of wet specimens that he donated to a institution called the College of Physicians. And um, eventually his core collection became part of uh, – his core collection became the, the, the nidus of the, the Mütter Museum. They've, of course, gotten other specimens and added things. But if you go there, you can still see some of his original specimens. Okay. And they include things like you know, any kind of organ with disease – skeletons, skulls, babies in jars, your sort of standard medical museum uh, fair. But the Mütter is very special in that while these kind of museums are fairly common in Europe, um, they're much more rare in the United States. So it's one of the few places you can go to see actual pathological wet specimens in person and up close. Mm -hmm. I happen to be on the one of the committees at the Mütter. So I spend a lot of time there. I spend a lot of time in the back rooms. And I should okay. point out here that my collaborator on Death Under Glass, Nikki Johnson, currently has her own exhibition there right. called Unseen. So Nikki was given free reign to rummage around the back rooms of the Mütter Museum to see all the things that are not on display and photograph whatever she found interesting. It's a great show. You should go see it. And it's on till the end of September. Okay. Definitely check that out. All right. You mentioned that you were just kind of lucky, like it was good timing to have your exhibit there at, at the Mütter. Like, did you approach them or did they come to you or how did that work? Anna and I were sitting outside of waiting for a cold case meeting to begin okay. uh, for a society we both belong to. And I told her about the exhibition and she said, you know, we just opened an exhibition space. Maybe we should look into this. And that was it. Okay, so so the whole thing was just perfect timing. That's interesting. <laughs> yes, perfect timing. Right, okay. Another place you've had your exhibit was at the Bart's Pathology Museum in London, uh, which was a number of years ago now. Can we talk about that? How did that come about? Sure. I, After launching our, the Death Under Glass Instagram account in 2015, I got to know 
actually, I, I lie. It was prior to that. We had a Twitter account earlier than that. And I got to know Carla Valentine, the curator of Bart's Pathology Museum. Mm, I've um, heard of her. Through, yeah, through social media. And uh, I happened to be in London in, I think, 2014 for a meeting of the European Association of Museums of the History of Medical Sciences. It's a long, long time. Wow. But okay. Basically, it's, you know, the the uh, sort of convention of medical museums of the world. And I met Carla there and she said, you know, we have space on the walls for at, at, at Bart's for panels and images, if you'd be interested. And it just so happened that the period of time that she offered uh, us to show I was going to be living in London anyway. So mm-hmm. that worked out really well. We were, Death Under Glass was there for uh, two or three months, I think. And it was a great experience. Okay. Did you, like, were you, you were allowed to be there in the exhibit and could you answer questions from people who were viewing it? Did they have that kind of thing? They did. The, she, uh, Carla arranged many interactive events. Um, I gave two lectures on sort of what being a medical examiner was like. I was actually supposed to give one, but it sold out. And so they booked another. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. They had an opening night, uh, you know, where people could come and talk to me and Nikki about about the show. And she had quite a few events there. So it was was really an interesting experience. Mm, Okay. I bet. I think the medical examiner system is a bit different there in England, isn't it? It's more of a coroner system, isn't it? I believe it's almost entirely a coroner system. And which... It's kind of surprising to me, but uh, I know that there is a movement there to train medical examiners and to change the system, but I'm not clear on how far they've gotten with that. Uh, how long was your ex- – I think you mentioned this, sir. How long was the exhibit there at Bart's? I think it was three months. It was oh, okay. Yeah. And you mentioned that you had been living in London for a little while. Was this at the time when you – during the, the Fulbright Fellowship – Yes. So in 2015, okay. I moved to London for four or five months uh, on a Fulbright Fellowship in Police Research and Criminal Justice at the uh, Law Department of the London School of Economics, which was a terrific experience. And what I was interested in was researching the laws surrounding a topic that I have been looking at for a long time, which is violent death during pregnancy. Okay. So, so believe it or not, about 20% of women who die while pregnant are murdered. And in my short career, I think I have autopsied, I think I'm up to 19 or 20 pregnant women, more than half of whom died at the hands of their current or former intimate partner. Wow. So it's far more common than you might think. In some jurisdictions, uh, murder is the leaning banner of death for pregnant women, which is pretty shocking. Yes, it is. But I found that when I went to write up my cases, I had almost no resources to call on. There's very little in the literature about how to autopsy a pregnant woman. And so as I went, I made mistakes and then I figured out with the next case, I should do something different and figured out how to head off pitfalls. And I wanted to look at the, um, the laws in the UK, which are written differently than the laws we have in the U S about, um, death of an unborn child. Uh, and that I worked with a woman named Jill PA, uh, who's a law professor at the London school of economics and um, she was super helpful in helping me get a sort of a framework of um, how I wanted to think about the project. Okay. Can we talk about the, the project then? Like what 
what kind of things did, did you do during this uh, fellowship? Well, do you want to know about the the academic things or the fun things? Because those are two kind of different things. <laughs> um, can we do a little of both? <laughs> so as it turns out, if you have a two-bedroom apartment that you're renting in central London, you become a remarkably popular person. Okay. <laughs> a lot of people came and stayed with me for, you know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, we went and did fun stuff in London. I, I took some side trips to, uh, to France, to Scotland, to Spain. Sure. Okay. Um, I also did things like I worked on some grant applications. I got a reader's card at the Welcome Collection and the British Library, which were great places to work. Okay. Um, Wait, what, what's the Welcome Collection? What is that? Uh, the Welcome Collection is a, an institution that has uh, in, in London that has a um, a reading room associated with it, and if you can prove that you're an academic researcher, they'll let you use it as a place to work. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, it was a it was a great experience. Um, I you know I I had a lot of time and a lot of space to sort of think about what I wanted to do with the information that I was generating, and eventually I went on to design a, a project looking at um, postmortem pregnancy testing, proving that over-the-counter pregnancy tests work to pick up very early pregnancy in female decedents, okay. um, not only in urine, but also in other body fluids. Those will work too. Okay. And that was funded, uh, for which I'm very grateful, by the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. Did you publish these findings or, or how did that go? Working on it. Okay. understand. <laughs> Okay. Was it difficult for you to completely move to a different country? I mean, I know it's obviously it's the same language for the most part. Um, but was was that was that hard to get used to? No. Uh I had been to London many, many times. Um and I am a pretty committed Anglophile, so I'm very comfortable there. The one thing I missed was I couldn't get a decent cup of coffee. But other than that, oh. it was pretty okay. You know, London is is a great place in that you'll never run out of things to do. It's yeah. easy to get around. It, you know, it's a place that I I had. I was very happy living there for four months. We'll get back to our interview with Dr. Marianne Hamill right after this. Labvine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Hello, everyone. I am Ranga Sampat, creator and host of the U Plus AI podcast. In this show, we meet with people who are leading the change at the intersection of healthcare and artificial intelligence. We discuss their experiences, their challenges, and explore together where AI may drive the most impact. You may catch this podcast in all popular podcast channels and at uplusai.com. Enjoy the show. And now back to Dr. Marianne Hamill on the People of Pathology podcast. I want to talk a little bit about then the, the death under glass Instagram account, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. And it's sort of, you know, at the beginning here, you were talking about the, the histology images, the microscopic in, images and things like that. And it's sort of, it seems like it's sort of evolved 
into kind of broader forensic topics. Um, how, how, does, how did that start to happen? I noticed that when I sort of posted about what my day-to-day life as a medical examiner was like, the, the posts were really popular and people had um, very intelligent and thoughtful questions. And, you know, sometimes I post about things that I think don't get much attention, like how much work my assistants do in the morgue. You know, the people who really run a large big city morgue aren't the forensic pathologists. They're the, the staff that handle things like taking a census of, you know, who's in the cooler, um, handling body release, right. keeping tracks of your toxicology, mopping the floor. I mean, I just, I show up once in a while with, you know, sharp objects and smart remarks. So <laughs> it's, but on television, the, the forensic pathologist is always sort of like this lone wolf who does, you know, everything from the autopsy to identifying the body to the right. paperwork. And that is completely untrue. There's a huge support network uh, around medical examiners that gets almost no press. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and often on, on, on TV, they, they do that in very poor lighting. And- uh, yes. The, the single, the single bare swinging light bulb. Yes. Right. Yeah. Which yes. I, I don't understand at all. Yeah, okay. I've, I've never quite gotten why TV shows have a, a medical examiners with a night shift where if there's one thing that dead do exceptionally well, it's wait. Okay. They'll, they'll be there at 8am. I promise. Right. I haven't had one get up and leave yet. <laughs> okay. So how do you decide then? Is it based on the feedback you get from uh, the the viewers? Is that how you decide what, what you're going to post on, on Instagram? No, actually, it's pretty much whatever I feel like posting about that particular day. Um, oh, okay. I do have some sort of loose rules. I, I, I won't show autopsy pictures because mm-hmm. I think that's inappropriate and I don't want to, uh, you know, I want my, the patients that I care for, even in death, to have privacy. I will use pictures that are already in the public domain. I don't have mm-hmm. a problem doing that. And I find that I can get my point across using, you know, cartoons, schematics, graphics, you know, anything like that. I don't especially need to use overly graphic photos to make people understand what I'm trying to say. Okay. So you're, you know, you know, there's some of those accounts out there that are, it seems like they're just kind of shock value where you're, it sounds like you're going for, you're trying to teach people and trying to educate. Is that, is that right? I'm trying to teach people. I'm trying to educate. I'm trying to give them a little glimpse of what being a medical examiner is like, because I think, uh, one of the problems I had as, you know, an 18 year old girl who wanted to be a forensic pathologist is there's not that many of them. And the information that I had to work with was not much. Right. You know, I, I didn't really know much about, you know, how does somebody end up at the medical examiner's office? What's the difference between a coroner and a medical examiner? You know, um, how do you learn how to do an autopsy? Mm-hmm. The best best I could do was, uh, you know, Tom Noguchi's book, Coroner, and uh, an old show called Quincy that was on, on in reruns during the day. No. That, love, love Quincy. Love Quincy. <laughs> you know what? I My late mother says that I watched a lot of Quincy, but the only thing that I could remember about the show was the opening credits. <laughs> <laughs> we know where Quincy whips the sheet off the body and all the and police it, training all over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I... I, I, I kind of feel the same way. I haven't watched the show in a long time. And that, yeah, that is the only thing I remember. Yeah, um, I was, I was pretty little when it was on. So do you feel like through the things that you're doing, maybe you've inspired other people to 
follow the path that, that you've chosen? I hope so. One problem that forensic pathology has um, among many is that we have a, a lack of numbers. Yeah. So we produce something like 25 to 35 new medical examiners a year, you know, people who take the forensic pathology boards. Mm-hmm. Uh, forensic pathologists are dying and retiring at a much faster rate than that. So um, right. offices have trouble hiring because there is no one to hire. So I hope that people see it as a viable career option. You know, if that's something you're really genuinely interested in, it is a long road, but it's a tremendously interesting job and you will never lack for work. That's true. That's true. I've had a couple of other forensic pathologists on this podcast and they they all say the same thing. There aren't there aren't enough of you to start with. And yeah, everybody everybody I don't want to say they enjoy the work they do because that sounds a little weird, but they, they, they find it satisfying. I do. I like to solve puzzles. I like working with my hands. You know, I I think it's undervalued. I think mm-hmm. it's a tremendous public service. As I often say when I give lectures, you know, one of the most important pieces of paper you're ever going to generate in your life is a death certificate. Without it, your spouse can't remarry. They can't settle your estate. They can't get your life insurance. They can't sell your house. It's it's pretty underrated, actually. One of the other things I wanted to talk about, you you do quite a bit of cold case work. So I'd like to know, how did, how did you, first of all, how did you get involved in, in this type of work? I got involved in cold case work when some district attorneys local to me called me up and said, you know, we have this old case and we don't know what to do with it. So I looked at a couple of them and two of them in particular ended up going into trial. One was from 1968. One was from the early 2000s and they got convictions in both. I testified in both cases. And what I really found interesting about cold case work was it's really interesting to read someone else's work. Uh, It's not something you get to do as often as you might like. So you end up reading the autopsy report and saying, Oh, I like the way that's worded. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pinch that for, for a later report or, um, I think that, I think that cold case work is also a great service, but it's really, really, really difficult work. Cases are cold for a good reason. You know, the police don't need me to tell them that they should run a DNA sample. They figured that out already. Uh-huh. So by the time they get to review by, uh, you know, a cold case society, they've already worked all their leads. But they are fascinating cases. Absolutely mm-hmm. fascinating. Okay. How does uh, – is it like a case has to be a certain number of years old or how does it get classified as a cold case? Depends on the squad. Um, they get to make their own rules. I am a member of the VDOC Society, which is a invitation-only cold case society that was formed about 30 years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, and they meet nine times a year in Philadelphia. And law enforcement officials come from around the country to present their findings in front of the members of the VDOC Society who can include you know, everything that you can think of, uh, forensic pathologists, FBI profilers – retired police officers, you know, experts in, I think there's a lady who's an expert in ritual murder, forensic psychiatrists, and they present the case. We ask questions, make suggestions as to further leads. But the thing I like most about the VDOC Society is that listening to other professionals analyze the case, they come up with things I never, ever would have thought of. Mm, There's There's a forensic accountant in there somewhere, I think, 
who made a really good suggestion at one meeting that if you wanted to disprove somebody's al- alibi, you need to go through his tax records because he's claiming he was at work that day <laughs> and you can prove he wasn't by going through his payslips. I never would have thought of that. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so you get those sort positive. of out- outside viewpoints. Okay. And you, you mentioned the, the VDOC Society. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Like what, how, how did that begin? Uh, VDOC was formed in 1990 okay. by um, three men who, one was, I believe, a uh, retired FBI agent. One was uh, forensic artist, Frank Bender. And then there was a forensic psychologist. And they said, you know, how come we can't get all our retired friends together and, and look at these cold cases and make suggestions? So that's what they ended up doing. VDOC meetings are invitation only, but if you can score an invite someday, if you're in Philly from a member, you should go. It's really, it's, it's a lot of forensic firepower in one room. How was it that you got in an in, in invitation? I mean, I know you're a, you're a full member now, but how did, how did that start? So my friend Anna Doty was a member and she took me to a couple meetings and then I was recruited from there. Okay. And, and so they were looking for a pathologist. They were a little short on pathologists and uh, they were looking for a forensic pathologist to add to the group. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And because of your work and you, you'd been doing cold case work already, is that how they? Uh, yes. In my, I was invited to apply to, for membership and um, I was able to cite some of the cold case work I had already done and testified in. And then through the, the VDOC society, have there been, have you uh, helped to solve any of the cold cases? I mean, obviously, obviously we can't go into details, but. No, actually, the, the proceedings are, are confidential, um, but I think there are a few cases that might crack in the near future. I'm hopeful. Oh, wow. That's that that's got to be very, very satisfying to be a, a part of that then. I hope. The last thing then is as far as death under glass goes, what. So I, I know with with you know, the pandemic and everything going on right now, having sort of live exhibits is kind of difficult to do, but uh, do you have any, any future plans for, for the exhibit? We do. We have a couple potential uh, venues on the burner for new exhibitions. So we're negotiating with them right now. We've continued to expand our archive and print pieces. So the show has grown quite a bit since its inception. Uh, The other thing we're looking forward to doing is possibly creating a coffee table book of of images and information about the images. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think that that would, that would work really well. And then of course, like you mentioned earlier with, with Nikki's exhibit at the, at the Mooner museum, right? Yes. Now. Unseen is uh, on the wall at the Mooner museum in Philadelphia until the end of September. And okay. you'll get a glimpse at the uh, objects and back rooms that are not open to the public at the museum. All right. That's great. I'll definitely include in the show notes, I'll include a link to unseen as well as death under glass, uh, the, the VDAC Society as well, and some of the other things we talked about. This was really interesting. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? I don't think so. I, I really appreciate the invitation, and it was great talking with you. Thank you so much. Dr. Ma- Marianne Hamill, thanks for being here. Take care. Here's a preview of the next episode featuring the return of Dr. Rodney Rohde. Just while we're on the topic, if you look at, I pulled this up yesterday because I was curious, and CDC has begun mapping these and keeping reported case numbers. So let me just share a few numbers with you. Okay. Uh, That UK variant, the 117, as of yesterday, February 23rd, there have been 1,881 reported cases of that one and 45 states. And the South African variant, 
uh, B1351, there's 46 cases, so much fewer, uh-huh. and, on, and only 14 cases. And then that Brazil version, there's only five so far in the U.S. and four states. And when you look at, I can't show it to you, but when you look at a map of the United States illustrating this, it appears California, Florida, uh, and then up in the uh, Wisconsin area in New York, those states appear to have, as of now, the most cases, four to 500. Everywhere else in the country is, uh, let's say, below 100. Okay, the, the most so, cases of the variants. You mean. Right, right. right. Okay. So, you know, they're, they're starting to map these, keeping an eye on them, uh, study them. And obviously what we want to make sure doesn't happen is, you know, if they become the dominant strain, do we have an issue with the vaccines? Do we need to mm-hmm. tweak that vaccine? Do we need to do something to try to adjust the coverage? Great big thanks to Dr. Marion Hamill. I always like these behind the scenes looks at projects like these. So this was a, this one was a lot of fun. You'll definitely want to check out the links in the show notes to all of the things we've talked about today. And that'll be at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode and you think it might help someone else learn about pathology, make sure you share it with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.